0: Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Sasha and Adam show. That um, actually feels really weird to say that we've been listening to ourselves talk for 20 episodes in a (laughs) row now. Um, But yeah, so right, we have a really kind of interesting guest coming on today Mm -hmm. who I'll get Adam to introduce. Um, This is actually my first time talking to this guest i'll leave it a surprise for the next 30 seconds but this is gonna be something different to what we normally do on the show and i think we're going to be listening to a very unique perspective on what's going Mm. on right now with
1: covid19 yeah so today we're interviewing um, Marco Scali, who is the head of history at Loretto Normanhurst. Um, he was actually a history teacher at Newington, where I went to school, and he taught me in year 10 history, um, particularly with World War I. And at Newington, Marco was a bit of a legend, to say the least. Basically, everyone said, like, who is your favourite teacher? Who is your favourite teacher? And like, most people point in the direction of Mr Scali. Um, So I thought it'd be really, really interesting to have him on and talk about the sort of educational... Um, effects of Corona and how that's affecting teachers. So welcome on Marco. Thank
2: you, Adam. Thank you, Sachin. Happy to be here.
1: Yeah, thank you. So let's jump straight into it. How has coronavirus sort of impacted education for you and what has the whole experience been like?
2: Wow. Where do I start really? I mean, it's, it, it's almost like a sense of losing time the past couple of weeks. Um, mm. Probably about four weeks ago, things started to get a little bit hairy with regard to obviously the statistics increasing and increasingly, um, you know, obviously I'm saying all this from the perspective of of my school, but, you know, I have a lot of peers and colleagues in other schools who've gone down similar paths. And when we started to see the numbers increase and the government um, starting to think about social distancing or closing businesses, but then adding that schools would remain open, it did create a tremendous amount of anxiety and uncertainty in schools and, I guess, challenges for leaderships of schools because students, parents and teachers started to ask questions about whether we, as you know, I teach at an independent school, were going to toe the line with what the government directive was, which seemed very unusual at the time. Yeah. Were you
1: sceptical initially? Of the government directions?
2: Very much so. Yes. I mean, you know, I I felt um, that the government was particularly coming from the angle of wanting to maintain economic stability, which I understand, but I guess my scepticism came from the fact that I have a lot of family in Italy um, and particularly in uh, Lombardy North where yep. the coronavirus had cut a sway through the population kind of three weeks prior to when our numbers started to increase. So I was particularly, um, I guess, anxious about it and did have conversations directly with my principal about it, saying that, you know, I know you're aware of things, but I have a little bit of kind of first hand experience from talking to my cousins every night about what we need to do and then that started to kind of flow in to Australia as well where you started to see a lot of stuff coming out of Italy with young people making videos and trying to inform us as to what was going on Um, but in schools the government continued to hold that line about um, that we need to stay open and increasingly it was very difficult I must say as a teacher to not show your political hand yeah because we were told to be know relatively impartial but when you have kids every period asking you do you think we're going to close down what do you think is going to happen you kind of have to give them what you think you know to get on with the lesson so Mm. at first i kind of towed the line but then eventually was saying look i i think it's stupid that we're here and this is the reason why um but yeah i mean that that's the deal and then eventually We, um, some teachers started to actually, when the government, uh, when Morrison kept doing presses basically on Sunday night saying, yep, no, school's continuing. Um, teachers started to take days off, you know, a day here, a day there, kind of in silent protest. And then kids started to take a day off a day here and a day there, Mm. you know, staff and students that never would. Um, and then our principal made the call quite early with a couple of other schools I mean, the thing with my school as well is that we have a massive boarding house as well with over 200 girls in it. So there's no way they can socially distance because they literally sleep like a metre away from each other. So that was shut first and those girls were sent back to the far corners of Australia, wherever they came from, you know, they're all across Australia. And then um, we thought that's weird because for three days after that, we were teaching these girls that had gone back to you know Wagga Wagga and wherever they were from and the girls that were still in our class yeah and so that put huge strain on teachers because we were trying to kind of deliver lessons via a google doc or via a learning platform like canvas but then also teaching a class live and we were recording our lessons and then uploading them to a drive. So the girls, you know, in the country could see them and then Mm. they couldn't get Wi-Fi, and it was just chaotic. Um, And then eventually the principal just went, this is not going to work for us. And, you know, kind of like found this middle course of the school's not closed, you know, people that still want to send their kids to the school can send their kids to the school. We're open, but staff will be here, but we advise you to, you know, be home if you can be home. Yeah, And then the week that she said that, there were probably about, I reckon, 20 kids at school for a week. Wow. The parents had sent them there and there was 130 staff <laughs> teaching wow. 20 kids. Were these so,
1: kids, like, were their parents sort of on the front line, like nurses, do you think? or
2: A lot of them, I have to say, were actually um, children of staff.
1: <laughs> oh, that makes <laughs> yeah. sense.
2: Yeah. Because they were just there, and some of them had had parents um, on the front lines that were, you know, nurses or doctors, and they couldn't get time off work. But I think that week, in that week, they realised that if they could rework things, it was actually in their kind of best interests for their kids to learn at home because it was just absurd being in a class with, like, you know, a teacher and a student. Yeah, totally. Um, so eventually, after a week, it trickled to you know nothingness um, and then the whole system went online after about five days and staff were allowed to then apply if they wish to work from home or at work which of course most staff are going to work from home um, because they could The those that couldn't and needed the wi-fi at work stayed there but we eventually it sort of you know slowly happened over the course of two weeks that um eventually everyone just ended up at home teaching their classes which was the best kind of situation for everyone really in the end what's
0: what's the disruption been like for year 12 students in particular
2: well it's been obviously really hard for them in the sense of um the week that we actually um kind of left school you're not allowed to say closed because technically the government didn't want us to close It, it was actually it's it's very delicate the language you have to choose because I know Dan T and the education minister today actually told private schools that they need to um, reopen in term two which a lot of private schools have already told their um, communities that they're not opening but that they are open if people wish to send their kids so you've got this like bizarre kind of dance going on and I know that um, you know a lot of private schools I can't you know, speak for mine specifically, did face a lot of heat directly from the government when they did encourage um, students to go home probably a week before the state schools did. So it was a real kind of, um, I don't know, experience of government control that you haven't seen in Australia. You know, government's trying to dictate what um, independent educational organisations do um, and whether that was happening at uni as well, I'm not sure, you know, whether it was left to the vice chancellor or whether there was government interference, but I would highly suspect that there was a lot of government diplomacy pushing, um, the prolonged kind of, uh, or the delay on closing these institutions because a lot of the vice chancellors probably wanted to close, but the government was not allowing them. Um, Back to your question, though, about year 12s. Yeah, I think extremely disruptive. Look, at first, our school, um, when they did go to, you know, encouraging students to go home, I think they handled it amazingly well. But they said that, you know, we can't use Zoom because it's, um, you know, like potentially a privacy issue or, Mm. you know, we can see you and it's an unusual way of teaching. And I have to say, not to big note myself, but I was one of the ones that did go to the leadership of the school and say, for the other groups, we can do whatever. But for year 12, this is not going to work if we don't have at least some kind of face-to-face contact. Mm. And we just have to do it. And you have to get over the fact that like, we can see them on the other end of a laptop because we can see them in real life as well you just have to you know tell them to dress appropriately and do the usual bizzo and the same rules apply but, but we have to do this and to their credit within a day it was like yeah it's not going to work we can't teach everyone via a google doc kind of remotely it's just not going to happen so that that helped year 12 a lot and i think that they've been really diligent and conscientious in maintaining and attending lessons and being there on zooms and doing the same thing they would normally do. But, yeah, I, I think the uncertainty comes with what's going to happen at the end of all this with regards to the HSC and yeah. is there going to be an exam.
1: Yeah, I think that's going to have a big strain on the sort of mental effects. Um, w- what have you seen in regards to students' mental health at the moment? Like, do students feel down from just being at home all day or having to learn in a manner that isn't really maximising their efficiency? Or, or just... That's- yeah.
0: In general, yeah, it's only been what a couple of years since we finished year 12, and I honestly think year 12 for me was way harder than uni's been. Um, just the Ooh. amount of stress, the pressure, definitely the constant comparing yourself to other people. It's yeah, it, I, I think it's easy to forget how difficult it is, and to add this on top, like it's just something I can barely even fathom.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think year 12 is so intense and. I can say it firsthand because I've done it every year since I finished school, you know, apart from those years at uni, like, you know, often students don't think that teachers go through it as well, but really the respite I had were those four years of uni. And then I got, got a job and did the HSC again, you know, and it is, it is really intense. um, Particularly if you're in a, a school that, you know, wants to perform well academically, which is all schools, but every school has its different angle, but, um i think the strain as you say in normal circumstances is very high yeah. i think in this circumstance yes i think kids were initially when we transitioned and we were using zoom um it was a bit of a novelty and also they i guess their anxieties were assuaged somewhat by the fact that we could still talk and still have our normal contact but i think over time you know over kind of two and a half weeks they were starting to get a bit fatigued and flat. Um, And I think the biggest thing guys was that the most under, underestimated aspect of school has kind of come to the surface here, which is those little conversations you have with like, you know, teachers and students in the hall or, you know, in the playground, that, that randomness that you miss. And I think that is actually the biggest release on the pressure valve. That is the HSC, just that, general stupidity that you can sort of engage in in between the intense moments whereas this way it's sort of like turn up to the lesson get your juice out of the lesson and then you leave and you don't have that informal interaction that you would normally have with your teachers that kind of banter and I think in the short term I don't think it's having a dramatic kind of effect on mental health of students but I think in the long term schools will need to find a way of in this bizarre virtual environment finding almost like an ersatz kind of substitute for i'm not sure if you can
0: yeah i that. can speak to what you were saying then about year yeah 12, because u 12 was one of the best years of my life because i'm a very extroverted person and just mm. seeing friends and going through this intense experience together mm. when everyone was going through the same thing those those lunchtime like and the jokes or, yeah yeah um and i think that's something that kept me kind of in good shape and as you said, a lot more people. Um, there's been a lot of talk um, in news and across government about what should be done with the HSE this year. Mm. Like we were hearing things about some unis t- taking into consideration year 11 marks. I yeah. think ANU yeah. came out and said that. Other universities were saying people were even considering um, not even having the ATAR as a way of getting in, giving <laughs> um, year 12's kind of uh, early entry almost in some aspect. Yeah. What, what do you think is the best way to move forward for the state education system?
2: Oh, it's it's just such a challenging situation because it's such a politicized topic as well you know in education i guess there's these two camps and um you know the one camp is that the atar is just the end of the world and such a terrible thing and that the this kind of lobby group are, are keen to see it removed for for sometimes genuine reasons i think and then there's those that you know see it as a logical kind of admission um, rank for uni um, you know I think these circumstances have heightened that debate, and I just hope it doesn 't get politicized because I think cool heads will need to prevail here um, with regard to i think unis do need an indicator. what I foresee, however, is again economic factors driving a lot of the decisions and I just hope that unis under the pressure that they're they 're under at the moment don 't just completely kind of open the floodgates and yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, I know it, it sounds like not necessarily um, that we would trust unis to do the right thing with regard to admissions, but I do have a degree of skepticism based on the fact that I know unis are really feeling the pinch at the moment. And maybe these kind of declarations that, you know, will let whoever in don't worry about an ATAR are, uh, uh, are they coming from compassion? I would hope so. Or are they coming from, revenue. we need bums on seats? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very fine line between upholding academic integrity and like sort of maintaining the system, but also looking at the revenue downfall. So I think Sydney Uni has lost, I think it was $417 million.
2: Amazing amounts, us yeah.
1: just from this semester, yeah. um, mainly from international students whose fees are like three or four times higher. Sure. Than people's fees so that is like a really legitimate hole that they're going to have to sort of fill and i think
0: yeah.
1: speaking just
0: very broadly here coming in the next few months i was talking to a few of my international friends in a shoot today and they were like we, we don't want to we don't want to be paying this much money for uni online um realistically we're not going to be getting a job in australia in the next two to three years it's hard enough as a domestic student and some employers kind of Have reservations about international students and getting jobs here. Like, why are we paying this much? So, I think it's not going to be only a short term shock. I think we're going to be seeing a shock to uni's revenue streams for the next couple of years.
2: For sure. And I think that's when, you know, (laughs) you need people that delicately protect the educational integrity of what we're about as a country. You know, is our education system about who's got the cash and who's got the dollars and, you know, or is it about people that have genuinely earned it? And of course you can be both of those, you know, groups. You can obviously be um, those that have genuinely earned it and also come from some affluence. But I think that, you know, Australia is going to have to be really careful with these decisions moving forward. I know, obviously, and you would have heard of this in Victoria that Daniel Andrews is, is going to delay the VCE and I'm not sure how that's going to work and how students will respond to that. But some of them will continue into 2021 if need be, if the exams need to be done at the start of next year. I know that NESA in New South Wales has not taken that course. Um, They made a statement a couple of days ago about that the HSC will proceed as normal, which I think, whilst it seems to deliver some clarity um will give students even more kind of concerns yeah about well how are we going to be able to do that considering that you know we've lost momentum this term and maybe our learning has been you know different or affected or whatever it may be um you know, are they going to work in some kind of special consideration? It's such a precarious area, like for um, educationalists, the area of assessments and equity and fairness. It's just such a difficult area in the best of times to not have situations where people are claiming they have um, not been treated fairly or have not had equal access to things. So in this situation, it's just fraught with, with peril. So, Personally, I think that they should go to um, internal assessment marks for this year um, and just assess, you know, on a case by case basis, trust teachers within schools to assess students. I know that's hard to do without an external exam where it's moderated against, but they might have to do it this year. Look, it's already been happening the past couple of years anyway with with unis who are um, admitting students without hsc marks so it's not yeah. that it's unprecedented um yeah it's it's an interesting area let's put it that way
1: yeah that's a it's a really difficult decision And i think like as we said before this uncertainty hanging over the students that's going to be really really tough not knowing basically how your life is sort of going to pan out am i going to university the next year am i staying in high schools what happens to school fees like there's so many sort of variables on the table here um, just to zoom out a little bit, so obviously you're a historian and you know a lot about specific parts of history. So for a lot of young people, this, has been very, this is unprecedented in terms of seeing a crisis and we're going to experience our first ever recession. Like there's 100% that we're going to experience quite a deep recession. How do you think this compares to other events of historical crisis and the way sort of leadership has been portrayed?
2: yeah i mean i've been thinking about this a lot obviously you know as a as a historian and being in that space you know the first the first reminder is the spanish flu pandemic inaccurately named spanish flu because it didn't originate in spain but but that's by the by but that pandemic um at the end of world war one and into 1919 look it's it's a very similar situation to that actually um and so I think there is a historical precedent there in the case of the Spanish flu and its effect on Australia. We did see very similar things happen in 1919 um, in January. And I know that that Spanish flu um, kind of cut a sway through Australia between January and, and September. of 1919 by September, it had kind of been and gone. Um, and I think it killed around 15 or 16,000 people in Australia um, when it came in, but, we had a situation there with the um the Spanish flu where, you know, people were wearing masks, um, you know, public gatherings were banned, um, state travel or interstate travel was banned. Um, and there was a lot there was also panic buying um as well at the time. So it's actually a very similar situation that that did occur. Were well, they panic the
0: buying toilet paper back <laughs> in the Spanish? Yeah.
2: <laughs> that I don't know. That I don't know um but i know that there was you know people kind of like getting this sense of that the government's going to quarantine us all um and there was just a general a huge amount of panic actually and it does remind me not that you could ever equate the bushfire crisis of the summer with world war one because they're they're not on par but you know to have world war one for three years for australia because obviously australia got involved in in 1915 um and then end in 1918, which was obviously, you know, void people's mood. And then to be followed by this is just horrific and and really shaped a a generation of people that, um, you know, I don't think people in our contemporary um, context really appreciate why the 1920s was was such a period of um, social exuberance and cultural experimentation. and excitement, really, and unfortunately, um, overspending as well, which led to the depression of 1929. But it was a natural reaction to just that. Say it again.
0: So so, um, that kind of that change in mentality after, do you see that coming in the 2020s after this crisis is over?
2: Absolutely, 100%. I, I think that what we've got here is a very, very similar situation. I think that you know, you've gently said that um, there'll be a recession. I think there will be a global economic depression. I know that's a harsher word to use, but I cannot see, um, you know, the EU surviving um, as an entity right. um, as, out of this experience. I think that, it, you know, the big body blow was dealt by Brexit um, and who would have thought that this would have come on the back of it as well? I could be wrong, and I'm a big supporter of the EU, so I I hope I'm wrong. Um, But I just think the damage this will do to the economies of France, um, Italy will not recover for for a long time, Um, and and Germany, I think they're really those countries that were keeping that EU together. Mm. Um, And I think now America as well is a big factor.
1: So, so why do you think the EU is going to collapse? Is that because when we see lots of economies under stress, countries tend to focus on themselves and become almost more nationalistic in a sense?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the EU has um, had lots and lots of knockers for the past few decades, to be honest. And hmm. sometimes for justified re- reasons, sometimes... It's because of historical amnesia, in my opinion. I think people forget why the EU was created in the first place um, by Italy after World War II, and you know why they pushed countries like France and West Germany to get involved and join them because of that terrible experience with fascism and totalitarianism in Europe. And you know, this is the fear that all historians have: is that people have very short memories. You know, like even a week now into Kind of semi-social isolation and lockdown, and people are starting to talk about we should reopen things. You know, it's people tend to to forget or like to live in a sense of denial. And you know, mm. the EU was there because of the fact that Europe is such a precarious geographical entity with so many different cultures that traditionally could could come into conflict with each other if they do look inward. And
1: yeah,
2: I just think. You know, um, Britain was the first, I guess, sign of something that is is going to struggle to keep together now in particular. I think Merkel's um, kind of, you know, ultimate resignation, soon she'll retire, will will be another blow. I think Macron's faced a lot of heat in France. I think the right is on the rise in Italy, I don't think I know. Mm -hmm. Um, And this will just give them further kind of impetus to say that you know, it's Italians first, it's the French first before yep. this kind of concept of solidarity. Although you could look at the other side of the coin and think maybe this will give people a wake up call that solidarity and working together is the answer to situations like this. Because I
1: think the solidarity you're pointing to is a really sort of community and localized. Um, idea of solidarity that we're seeing. So maybe a more internalised version of community, but then between nations, not so much.
0: Yeah, I've heard a lot of stuff about kind of the next few years unravelling all the things that globalisation kind of constructed and a few people kind of suggesting maybe we went too fast with globalisation and we need to get back to the core of what our country is, which I firmly disagree with. But i yes. interested to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Well, I think that's, that's what we're going to hear. I, I just think... The first time we'll hear it will be in the presidential campaign next year from Trump. Um, yeah. I think the first thing, I mean, we so know are they he's... Are postponing the campaign? Say it again.
0: Are they postponing the campaign to next year?
2: I'm not sure how it's okay. going to work. Okay, okay. Yeah, I actually don't know that. But um, I think that, you know, it's ready-made rhetoric for for Trump in that, He's already started to call it the Chinese virus, changing the language. Um, I think he has to be careful in actually attempting to destroy globalization, but maybe he's not a careful kind of guy. Because I think that, you know, in destroying globalization, a lot of America's interests will be affected as well.
0: Definitely. And I think another thing that we're seeing, well, I'm hearing a lot about reading a lot about it is that after this crisis is over, that China is going to come out as the undisputed superpower. It'll be strong. What do you think about that?
2: Well, that's what they would have wanted. Um, that's, that's, you know, I've been to China a lot of times and I'm very, very interested in Chinese history and, and Chinese international relations and, um, I think the Chinese when I say they I say the Chinese Communist Party that's that's been their goal not only to be the strongest economy in the world but to be the most revered powerful nation in the world so if that does come to fruition they certainly would have achieved their their goals um I'm not sure I think I think it remains to be seen what happens you know in America, whether it's going to be this easy run for China. I think China has to respond to this situation very delicately. I think they do harbour, I think they know they harbour some guilt, obviously, for the, for the outbreak of it. Mm. And I think that if China makes the right moves diplomatically now with regard to supplying the world with things like respirators, masks, yeah. um, we, which we I know they are doing.
1: A plane load of equipment coming from Wuhan just arrived in Sydney, I think it was today.
2: Exactly. And I think that if China does do those sorts of things, and I know they're working with with Britain as well at the moment, that what Sachin's mentioning there may actually occur in that China will replace America as, Mm. I guess, you know, that kind of paternalistic figure that can um, remedy the world with its productivity, with its strong economy. Um, But it will be up to China to manoeuvre, um and view and and i guess act globally as opposed to locally which i think the chinese are smart enough diplomatically to do and i think they will maneuver in that fashion in the next few months
0: we'll tag the chinese communist party in this
1: (laughs) (laughs) so do you actually do you see a lot of danger and risk to china and if they're becoming the global superpower over the next decade or
2: or so so danger to China or danger, so danger
1: to-, to the world, the risk of China becoming the superpower?
2: Uh, not what people think, no. In, in my opinion, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding um, with regard to, to China. I think they're a very driven country. I think they're driven for historical reasons. I think they've, they've had a lot of suffering in their national history and I think it's made them fierce And I think it's made them um, stronger. And I think that people understand the need for um, unity because it will make them more respected internationally and, and stronger as a country. I think, you know, the Chinese people have a huge amount of national pride, which gives them an advantage over countries that may be, I guess, in a sense more divided. Does that make them potentially dangerous? Look, I think any country that is blindly patriotic is potentially dangerous. But I think the other side of the coin for China is that they also understand that they cannot be powerful without international relationships. And that's the thing that a lot of people underestimate, that we don't have a regime here who, you know, like... um, Mussolini's Italy or, or, or Hitler's Germany thought they could be autarkies and, and survive alone. The Chinese um, government is well aware of the fact that they're, they're, they're toast without international markets for their goods. So mm. I think in a sense, people need to be, I guess, less concerned about the fact that the Chinese are a replication of these traditional Kind of totalitarian fascist governments that we 've seen before um, who want to kind of shape mm. other countries in their image, I think the Chinese are more intelligent than that with regard to their diplomacy. I think they they know how to leverage things by um, they 're more like the Roman Empire to be honest with you, you know, because the Romans were very good at at developing relationships with with other countries whilst at the same time. I guess, allowing those countries' cultures to still breathe and thrive. Um, and they did it through, you know, a pragmatic sort of business exchange relationship, um, which obviously came at a price. You know, if, for example, in the Roman empire, Judea tried to break away politically, then the Romans would show their muscle. But if they went at, you know, went along the, the you know, um, the people of Judea were just going along and, kind of cooperating and working within a system that was cooperative with Rome, there would have been no difference. So I think there is an insidious aspect to what China wants to do, but you could label the same thing in America and any other imperialist power in my view.
1: Mm, Very interesting. Very interesting stuff. Um, Let's move on to leadership. So how do you view the leadership of Australia's political Um, parties like Scott Morrison at the moment and how might you compare um, how he's done in this crisis to previous leaders in other crises
2: Mm. well it's it's a hard one because you know I feel that um, I don't think he's handled the situation well Um, I think that there is a bit of momentum in the media now behind him because of the fact that he has made these almost socialistic kind of reforms that have these elements of, you know, genuine support for people that are struggling. And I do applaud that. Obviously it's hard. It's hard not to, but I guess my criticism stems from a lot of what he's done in the past, but, in particularly just to be specific about about this crisis i feel that we acted way too slow i think that we were on 150 cases for about six weeks in australia and you know um there was still encouragement of you know to go to the footy and yeah. these sorts of things and i know it's easy to say in hindsight but you know i i just knew at the time that these were the wrong messages to be sending out Um, because of as I said my familial kind of ties to Italy and and what had happened in there and I knew for example that the the mayor of Milan had said a similar thing when people started to call for lockdown at about um, 300 cases in Milan and he said no that's you know ridiculous and then um, took selfies of himself and put them on Instagram um, <laughs> of him in some, you know, cafe in Milan saying That's the right. coronavirus, it's all exaggerated. Don't worry about it. And then a week later he had it. it sometime. Yeah. So <laughs> it was, it was a similar thing.
0: There was an Iran health minister who told everyone like not to worry about it. And then he was ready yeah. and then it turns yeah. out he had it. Yeah. I think he actually might've passed away from it.
2: That's awful. Yeah, yeah, it's just terrific. So I think in those early moments, I, I, I did feel very frustrated um, for for a period of time. And, you know, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at those national cabinet meetings. Yeah. Because I think that there would have been some furious conflict, particularly between, I'd say, Dan Andrews and and um, the Libs on, on this issue. Because I, I did see one presser, Dan Andrews, did, when um Morrison was saying the schools should remain open and i was I was hoping that Andrews would break ranks because i I have actually met um Daniel Andrews in the past and have a lot of respect for him but he he did a he did a a press conference i think at three days after Morrison said the schools will stay open and and he said the same thing he said, "No at this stage, I think schools should stay open and um but we'll see what happens in the coming weeks and I thought, man there must be like a massive threat here that he's going to have funding pulled from him. Just, you know, you can see that there was, I want to do it, but I can't do it. And then obviously he broke ranks first and then Mm. Gladys followed. But I think it's really interesting when Morrison's talking about, um, you know, this is non-ideological and both parties are, you know, putting their ideologies aside. I, I, I wish that was true, but, I do, you know, and I think the Labour Party has towed the line and, and you know supported a lot of the legislation, but I still think there's room for um discussion on on certain things because I think I think we all need to work together, absolutely, in situations like this. But I do fear there's a really kind of thin divide between letting a government kind of do whatever it wants and appropriate consultation between those that have differing views, not just mm-hmm. between Canberra and and premiers. Um, I think, you know, the opposition should have been involved in the national cabinet. I think parliament should still be running. I think there should be vigorous debate in question time. Um, and, you know, the reason I say that is going back to your point about historical connections that I understand in times of crises that, you know they do form these kind of ex committees. You know these ex coms that you know JFK did when the Cuban missile crisis occurred in in sixty um, two, and it was just like a committee of JFK and 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 trusted people. Um, they can sometimes be you know kind of closed shops. I like the situation in England in World War One when you know um, Asquith was the prime minister and the the opposition. Um, just challenged you know the decisions that he was making and you know parliament was still running there during world war one and whilst you know lots of groups like the suffragettes even stopped stopped protesting during world war one which was really interesting there was this kind of unity that that um, emerged but there was still vigorous debate in the house of commons despite kind of quite punitive and oppressive legislation like defense of the realm act which you know, forced people to, you know, um, ration food and be conscripted and all these sorts of things. So, look, I think it's, it's not necessarily different to other historical leaders in the past. I think that ScoMo's made mistakes. I think JFK made mistakes. He's the one I always go back to. I think that political leaders in these situations face a heap of pressure. I think JFK made Huge mistakes in, for example, the Bay of Pigs situation in um, sanctioning an invasion of uh, of Cuba, which backfired because you know the the Cuban exiles who invaded failed, and it was a huge propaganda victory for Castro. And you know this was something that devastated Kennedy. But one of the things he learned from that was to not trust certain advisors. Um, you know, one of the things Kennedy says in the aftermath of Bay of Pigs is that. He was going to trust less less military advisors and more people he knew were the best minds, like his brother, like you know Bob McNamara um, you know people he 'd kind of actually developed relationships with at at Harvard, which was interesting um, and I think something like that might be happening with scomo at the moment. I, I guess really kind of strong relationships are forging now um, in Canberra, and I think that Morrison learnt a lot out of the bushfires and maybe that for australia has been a bit of a blessing but i still think that morrison is easily influenced by what's happening in america and england which is my greatest concern i think that a lot of our early advice came out of um, england from you know boris johnson and, and british um, medical advice and a lot of it came out of the cdc in america as well and we saw where both of those countries have gone. And I actually did do a bit of research on that. And there was a, another press conference that Scott Morrison did. That was literally word for word, a document produced by the CDC, the medical organization in America, literally word for word, wow. it was like a hundred percent plagiarized. So it really concerned me at the time that they were following those sorts of things that closely knowing now what has happened in that, that I I'm telling you now, four weeks ago.
0: Yeah. Um, so I I kind of, I'm very interested to know, um, you've been referencing history throughout, but in terms of all these crises that have happened in the past, what do you think on the fundamental leadership lessons that we can apply to what's happening now, Mm -hmm. um, from those times, like the great depression, like world war one, um, like the Spanish flu.
2: Yeah. I think the lessons are in those situations that you need to not necessarily follow what happens in other countries. I think you can't have ideas kind of, I mean, you obviously observe patterns that have occurred before and if that assists, but I think every situation for an individual country is unique. And I think that we demand in Australia leaders that are tapped into the consciousness of what Australia actually is and what Australian people are I know that's a difficult sort of thing to define but I think being like independently minded and that that's what really worried me with that advice I I, it kind of you know was disheartening that whilst we were consultative and we were looking at what was happening in America and Britain. And I think that's important to be consultative. I think we need to process things a little bit better than that and not necessarily just rely on, I guess, ideas and advice that are coming from external sources. I think that. And given what's happening in America right now, that's particularly worrying. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. And, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these medical think tanks are, are highly credible, of course, and they have a lot of professional people working in them, but a lot of them are incredibly politicized as well. Like I said, with universities, you know, how independent are universities? Yeah. Um, you know, I would like to feel the school I'm in was incredibly independent because of the fact that they were able to make a call, but even when they've made this call, they've faced heat from a government. So... That's what I'm saying good leadership is. And I guess that's a good kind of um, link back that I think ultimately, you know, whether it's in a in a national sense or whether it's, you know, running your own life um, or whether you're, you know, the head of a family or whatever it may be, I think it's about making decisions for you as an individual or us as a country that are, I guess, free from that um, debris of, to a lot of people and then using your instinctual response processing that information but coming up with a uniquely independent um, decision that is not a result of being easily influenced by others that's what that's what I think the the great weight of leadership is historically sometimes people won't be happy with the decision that is made at the time but I think that Ultimately, good leadership is about doing what's right for your community. And, of course, that's going to be an individual decision, but doing what's right for your community is not necessarily always just based on what's populist, but, yeah, what you think will work in the unique interests of that population that you're, you're overseeing. And that's why Churchill was such a success you know, in many senses in World War II um, because I think he genuinely did always make decisions in the best interests of of Britain, um, you know, whether it's the withdrawal from, from Dunkirk, which saved thousands of lives, you know, the French weren't happy with it. Actually, I've been thinking about that withdrawal a lot. That opening scene of that film, Dunkirk, um, I think is so emblematic of how people have been feeling the past couple of weeks, you know, when these all these kind of um, traumatized British soldiers looking to escape on that beach there in, in, in Dunkirk, um, desperately seeking, you know, evacuation and hoping their government is actually going to save them with these ships and the haphazard nature of that evacuation, you know, where there's like everyday people. Um, steering ships towards you know Belgium and and Holland trying to get these people back to England it it does actually remind me not only of that I think it's actually I don't usually like Christopher Nolan's movies that much see now I'm talking about movies you can see (laughs) Um, but I think that opening sequence is one of the best in in you know top 10 for me in film history because it's it's very silent um, and it kind of climaxes with the the german bombing of the beach and just that that sense of helplessness for everyday people and i think that's what nolan does well there is that you don't know that actor he's not a known person he's just an every man and i think that's in a sense what a lot of people have been feeling just you know we're relying on government to to protect us and and to save us and to help us mm-hmm. and we're hoping that they make you know, good um, decisions in our best interests. And that's not an easy thing, but, you know, that evacuation at, at Dunkirk is an example of the government just going, look, we're going to, we're going to save thousands of lives here if we can, um, because people are, are terrified and we're going to get engulfed by, by, by something in that case, the Nazis. And in our case, you know, obviously what's been happening with COVID.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's some really, really good insight. I think especially about leadership, about it being about independence and not just looking to other people for authority. I think at the moment, we are having a very, very heavy reliance on government. But as we just wrap up stuff, um, we just want to ask one final question. What do you think would be the best advice or just one piece of advice for people that are our age, about 18 to 25 year old university students? What would you say to them? as just one piece of advice going through life?
2: Uh, I think going back to that idea of, I guess that idea of um, being independent in the way that you think, that would probably be the best piece of advice that I could give. I think that it's really important for, you know, I think true intelligence is, being able to be open to lots and lots of different perspectives. And, you know, I think that's one of the beautiful things about, you know, being an adolescent and being, you know, someone in your twenties is that your mind is open to lots of different ideas, but ultimately I think it's, it's about becoming comfortable with, with who you are as a person. Um, And knowing that, you know, there is a huge amount of diversity in the way that people think and, what their beliefs are and their cultural backgrounds and I guess becoming someone that is not limited in the way that you expect people to think the same as you I think that's a really dangerous type of thinking I think that Australia is you know going to be stronger for the more people we have that that do actually develop this kind of like comfort in who they are and independence of thought and you know sometimes i do become disheartened when i do see um i guess intolerance of other people's views like there's a lot of people i disagree with and i've been you know relatively political in this kind of interview but Mm. that doesn't mean that i wouldn't be open to hearing someone that has views that are not like me i would like to have the freedom to be able to disagree with them and and to challenge them on those points of view. But I just love living in a country, you know, probably this stems from my experience of studying so many totalitarian regimes that I just love living in a country where I can criticize some of the policies of Scott Morrison and, you know, he'd be cool with that and, you know, not care. And I can agree with some others. And I just think, will be yeah i think that's what everyone should aim for to kind of cherish being in a country like that and to develop that kind of like intellectual openness and capacity in themselves to be proud of who they are but to not be domineering in their opinions and to be open Mm -hmm. to to hear what other people have to say
1: yeah well, I think that's really important advice for everyone out there. Yeah, that's, to, that, was a good, that was a good way
0: to um, end off. And I think summarise a lot of the theme of what you've been saying this whole time.
1: Definitely. I think it all really led up to that. Cool.
2: Yeah, I hope so. I hope
1: yeah. So. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Marco. That was really awesome. I think just hearing your perspectives about education, but also the wider historical circumstances we're in. That was yeah. really, really awesome insight. I, I Absolutely think pleasure. this whole this whole time you've been talking um we've actually had Jack Jacobs on the show
0: a few times yeah I think the way you guys talk and think is very similar
2: <laughs> yeah look I knew you were going to say that because <laughs> it is it is uh quite a terrifying similarity I think it's true and if you got if you got me to talk on the questions that you probably asked Jack we probably would have said very similar things Yeah, yeah um, I did. do remember actually having Jack in that year 10 class in an elective class um for the first time and thinking wow yeah okay you know sometimes you teach kids that really are on the same wavelength as you and kind of have very similar thoughts and yeah it's a it's a similar way of contemplating or or viewing the world i think
0: yeah that's cool okay so this was episode 20 of the Sachin and adam show something very interesting something very different um and we'll see you guys next week thank you very much Marco. marco
2: See you. No worries. Thank you.